All right, tonight we want to continue our study on prayer and invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. This might be called a very familiar passage of Scripture. It's often referred to as the Lord's Prayer. In reality, it's the disciples' prayer. It was given to them as a pattern uh, for them to follow while they, when they prayed. It's not a, necessarily a prayer that you pray uh, exactly word for word. I think it's often wrongly used. Uh, we are not just to mindlessly repeat some rote memory uh, prayer, but this is something to use as a framework in which we can build a prayer life that is offered to God heard and answered by him, and one that uh, glorifies his name. So we're going to look at the pattern of prayer tonight from Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. First of all, our prayer should be to a person. Our prayer should be to a person. Well, who is that person? Well, that's the first uh, question we ask here. Who, in verse 9... It says, after this manner, therefore pray ye, our Father. And so there is uh, the answer to the who. Uh, there's the word our, uh, speaks of the community of faith. It's our Father. It's not just my Father, but as believers, it's our Father. And uh, that's what he was teaching his disciples as well. Our prayer life should encompass the entire family of God. Too often we're guilty of selfish praying. Me and my needs first and only. But in Philippians 2, 4 it says, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. So it should encompass the entire family of God. Secondly, it's Father, our Father, and this implies a relationship. If he's my father, I have a relationship with him. Uh, the new birth is required for answered prayer. John fourteen thirteen, And whos whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Uh, this was said in the context of Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So that answers the who. Secondly, the where. Again here in verse 9, goes on to say, Our Father, which art in heaven. So, uh, heaven. That speaks of God's position as a sovereign God. Uh, he is on heaven's throne. He's worthy of our faith. He's able but faithlessness has no place in our prayer lives. Hebrews 11:6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Uh, James 1, 16 and 17, Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turn, turning. Uh, when we go to Romans 14, there's a little 
phrase in there in verse 23, for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So we're praying, we can pray his promises. John 16, 23, and in that day ye shall ask nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. And then 1 John 5, 14 and 15, and this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. So that's the who and the where. There's another question, and that's how. In verse 9, it goes on to say, Our Father which art in heaven, that's the who and the where, hallowed be thy name. Two things to remember when we come before God's presence in prayer. First is the word hallowed. Uh, this reminds us of his holiness. God is a holy God. He must be approached in fear and reverence. We don't come to him just flippantly, casually. Uh, you know, we don't just say, well, hey up there, man, in the, uh, big man in the, in, in the sky or whatever. You know, that's kind of a, uh, just a flippant way of of addressing God. No, he's a holy God. Isaiah uh, recognized that in Isaiah 6 and verse 5 when he said, Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the King, the Lord of hosts. And then uh, Job also uh, had a highly high respect for God as well. He said, Behold, I am vile, what shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. He was very careful about how he approached God. So to truly hallow his name means we see him as the Lord over all. When his name is hallowed, and hallowed, we can never say, no, Lord. We can never say, not me, Lord. The only word that fits with the Lord is, yes, Lord. To hallow God, we simply ascribe to him the honor and glory and majesty that is and always has been his. And we become engaged in the praise of his person. You skip down to verse 13, and it says, Therefore thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That's the praise of his person. So there's the coming before him in uh, recognizing his holiness. That's what the word hallowed uh, uh, means. Then, hallowed be thy name. When we come to him, we remember that our access to God lies in that name which is above every name. Jesus is our only access and a, a, approach to the Father. 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so then we come to the What? Again, two ideas must be very utmost in our minds as we approach God. Verse 10 says, Thy kingdom come. Uh, thy kingdom come. Now, that's a, a, a tremendous concept there. And it has, actually uh, has a threefold request there. When we, we pray uh, for his kingdom to come, 
First of all, it's a request for the Lord's return. Now, the word kingdom does not refer to a geographical location, but to dominion and sovereignty. When we pray, thy kingdom come, we're praying for Christ's rule upon the earth. And this coming kingdom points ahead to a time when Jesus will come, and he will rule and reign upon the earth. And he'll do it in perfect glory, peace, and righteousness. And that's going to be a tremendous day. So there's a request for the Lord's return. But secondly, this is a personal request. We're literally praying for the kingdom of God to be realized in our own lives. If you know the Lord, the kingdom of God is in you. Luke 17, 21. Neither shall they say, lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. And very simply put, when we pray this prayer, we're asking Jesus to have supreme rule over our lives. Now, again, we may, when we pray, we're, we don't have to say, thy kingdom come. We don't have to always say that, but we have to recognize in our praying that God is supreme and he must rule in our lives. Uh, we'll never be effective saints of God until we're able to pray, my kingdom, my kingdom go and thy kingdom come. It's not my kingdom, it's God's kingdom. Now, that's the whole uh, intent of Matthew 6.33 where it says, uh, uh, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. That's, that's the whole idea there. He must have the key to every room in our lives. That is, he, uh, not, uh, uh, he must have absolute control of our lives. So it's a request for the Lord's return. It's a personal request, but it's an evangelistic request. Now, as we're yielded to God, he's ruling and reigning in our lives. We can play a part in bringing others to him. You see, another way God's kingdom is brought to the earth is when a new soul is brought to him through salvation. It's another temple that's going to be filled with the glory and presence of God. So we, when we pray for the lost, we're praying for God's kingdom to expand here on earth. And so, and we are to pray evangelistically. 1 Timothy 2, verse 1, says, I exhort you, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that they, we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Father, our Savior, excuse me, God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come into the knowledge, unto the knowledge of the truth. I think Stephen was praying for those who were stoning him. I wonder, could you do that? Pray for the people who are persecuting you? It says in Acts 7.60, uh, he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin unto their charge. But when he had said this, he fell asleep. It was just before he died. He prayed for the souls of those who were persecuting him. And when we pray, as we ought, we're focused on seeking the kingdom of the Almighty God. Then there's also thy will 
be done. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Now this is really a close cousin to the previous line there. For when God's kingdom is realized in the world, his will will be done here as it's done in heaven. This phrase is also telling us to place God's will at the very most important thing in our lives. It's a prayer prayed in the will of God that receives the answer of God. 1 John 5, 14 and 15, and this is the confidence we have in him. If we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. Now his will is not only what's going on here on earth, but his will in heaven. Psalm 103, verse 20 and 21. Bless the Lord, ye his angels, and excel in strength that do his commandments, hearkening unto the voice of his word. Bless ye the Lord, all ye hosts, ye ministers of his that do his pleasure. Now we need to remember that prayer never changes God's mind, but it does hasten his activity in the world. Prayer moves heaven in the earth. And often the reasons there is an unanswered prayer, as James said, ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss. The key is to be uh, lost in his will. So we are to pray to a person. That's what the uh, verses 9 and 10 are about. But then, verse uh we go on and our prayer should include petitions. First of all, we, we are to pray about physical needs. So often we pray for physical needs, but that's not uh, something that we should not be doing. No sin, no shame in asking God to meet our physical needs. He's promised to supply them. Philippians 4.19, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Psalm 37.25, I have been young and now I'm old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. Matthew 7 in the next chapter in verse 7, he says here, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth. And he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you whom, if his son asks bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks a fish, give him a serpent? <coughs> If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? In Romans chapter 8, verse 32, we read it, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And he says there in verse 11, Give us this day. Now we need to take today's need to God. So often we're more concerned about tomorrow's need. 
but we, leave, we need to leave tomorrow's need until tomorrow. When we worry about tomorrow, then we're beginning to get into uh, an area of sin. God calls us to rest in him today and to trust him totally for tomorrow as well. Now, this portion of the text encourages us to look God to God as the giver. Deuteronomy 8.18 tells us that he gives power to get wealth. We need to look to him for those things we lack. He has what we need. Psalm 50 verse 10 says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Romans 8.17, we are joint heirs with Christ. Yes, we need to pray for physical things. But secondly, we need to pray for spiritual needs. More spiritual needs are mentioned than physical ones. That's actually right, as we look here in this pattern for prayer, there's more about spiritual needs than there is physical ones. Why? Well, our spiritual needs are greater than our physical needs. You notice some of the spiritual needs here that we need to pray about? First of all, forgiveness for self. He says, give, uh, uh, forgive us our debts. There's something owed that we must pay back. Uh, it can be translated as sin or trespass or shortcomings, resentments, what we owe God or anything we've done for anything we've done wrong. We all need to seek God for forgiveness of our personal sins. That's in 1 John chapter 1. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Even Paul admitted he was not perfect. Philippians 3.12, not as though I had already attained, either we're already perfect. But when we spend more time in God's presence, we become more aware of his holiness and our sinfulness. Someone has said, the greater the saint, the greater the sense of sin and the awareness of sin within. And then there's forgiveness of others. An unforgiving spirit will destroy one's prayer life. Now, the society in which we live exalts vengeance rather than forgiveness. But our society is wrong. Unforgiveness will eat you alive spiritually It'll fill you with bitterness and anger and rage and anxiety and depression. Paul calls it the root of bitterness in Hebrews 12, 15. And there are three great reasons why we should practice forgiveness of others. Now, the first one is, you'll never be more like God than when you forgive. You want to be Christ-like? You want to be like God? You need to be a forgiving person. What kind of God do we serve? We, love, we serve a loving, gracious, kind, and forgiving God. And when we forgive others, we're exercising true godliness. Ephesians 4.32, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. And you go back to verse 10, what is being done in heaven? Uh, worship. Exaltation of Jesus, forgiveness of sin. 
You're, you're literally bringing heaven to earth when you forgive a brother in Christ. Matthew 18, 18 says, Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So you'll never be more like God than when you forgive. Secondly, it's only reasonable that those who are forgiven to forgive. We are forgiven, so we are to forgive. He has forgiven us a massive debt, and we can surely forgive our brother and sister in Christ those smaller debts. And then thirdly, failure to forgive results in chastening. Again, Matthew 18 deals with this. When we choose not to forgive, we will be tortured, plagued by bitterness, resentment, loss of fellowship with God. In fact, when we refuse to forgive, we are usurping the place and power of God himself. Romans 12, 19 says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place, and, uh, place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him, and if he thirst, give him drink. For in doing, uh, so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. And so when we don't refuse to forgive, we're playing God, and none of us are qualified for that job. So forgiveness of others. And then thirdly, to be delivered from temptation. Everyone is tempted, but God doesn't tempt us. We see that in James 1.13. Our prayer should not or should be that God would direct our paths so that we can avoid the places of temptation. Psalm 37, 23, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. This is a prayer to maintain close fellowship lest we be tempted. And then to be delivered from evil. It's a prayer for help in avoiding sin. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be, be tempted above that which ye are, uh, that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Again, a plea to God to change us, and even to protect us, and keep us, and walk with us, so we can be sheltered from the power of evil and the evil one. That is help to avoid the pitfalls of sin. And then a third area, as we wrap this up, we'll see our prayer should include praise. First of all, we praise God for his sovereignty. We praise him because he's the king. He deserves to be glorified. That's what we're seeing here. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. This is the pray. We pray, praise him for his sovereignty. Thine is the kingdom. He's in charge. And then we praise him for his power. He has to be prayed praised for his abilities and for the times that he's demonstrated his power in our lives. And then 
praise him for his glory. He demands, deserves all the glory in every situation of life. He should be glorified on earth as he is in heaven. Now, uh, often I like to use this uh, acrostic for prayer to be defined as including the following acts. A, for adoration. God must be worshipped. C, is confession. Our sin must be dealt with. T, is for thanksgiving. We must always possess a thankful heart before him. And S, is supplication. Now this is where we tell him what we need. So often we go right to S. When we should be going and adoring God, worshiping him, making sure our hearts are right with God, and give thanks for all the things that he's done for us. And then we can come to him and ask him for the things that we need. Now, these are the acts of prayer, but I think sometimes there is need for one other letter, and maybe even to put it in front of acts and make it facts of prayer, and F would stand for faith. We're going to pray. We've got to come to God believing. The letter F stands for faith. Without which we can't expect anything from God. And so how is your prayer life, and how does your prayer life look in compared to this pattern, this model? Again, just reciting this is not what was intended. It was intended to be kind of an outline or give you a framework for praying. And I hope this little study helps us to understand that. Let's pray. Father.